and welcome to another episode of the Cats Protection Shelter Medicine Podcast. My name is Sandra Milburn and I'm the Education Vet here at Cats Protection. And today I've actually got two guests with me today. Um, our two field vet officers, Jocelyn. Hello. And Lucinda. Hello. And the topic of our discussion today is going to be protocols. But before we get to that, I thought in the interest of diversification, I'm going to just have a quick chat to each one of the field vets in a bit more detail and just see how they actually came to working at CP and doing a sort of non-clinical role really now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so Jocelyn, can we start with you? Can you just sort of, in a nutshell, big or little nut? <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, I spent about eight years working as a vet for an RSPCA animal shelter. And then when that came to an end, I really wanted to stay in shelter medicine. And uh, when I saw this job, it seemed like the perfect opportunity. So here I am. No regrets yet, right? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you've basically been in shelter medicine sort of your entire career? Yeah, I had a small amount of time in private practice, but I soon realised that for me, shelter medicine is just a bit more interesting. You saw the light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super. Listen, now, how about you? Um, so when I graduated, I always knew I wanted to be in some form of charity um, work. So I started my career at the PVSA and worked there for about six years. Then I saw advertised a role at our National Adoption Centre as um, the clinical vet there um, as a maternity placement. So I did that for about a year and a quarter and then I moved over into my field vet role. Which you've been in for a little while as well now, haven't you? So uh, just over two years. Still going strong, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Super, thanks for that. So can you guys describe a little bit in detail as to what your role actually entails? I know it's not a most, the most straightforward one, but um, yeah, any details? What do you do? So I think for me, the reason why I love our role is because it is so diverse and there isn't really a standard day. Um, we work very closely with our adoption centres, so we're regionally based. There's actually three of us. Um, Fiona, our other one, is in the north. Um, and so we work with our adoption centres in our region. Um, we also do work with our branches in our region as well. Not so much for individual cats and care queries, but if we had an outbreak situation or we were looking to tender out our veterinary services, then that's where we'd get involved. We also um, write protocols. Um, we look at um, the drugs as well. So we do POM audits quite regularly on a six monthly basis. And we help look after our adoption centre relationship with their veterinary providers as well. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Anything yeah. to add, Jocelyn? Um, not really. We have a bit of an education role as well. We sort of talk to um, the adoption centre vets we arrange cpd events for them so that they are up to date with all our newest protocols and kind of get feedback from them about what's working and what isn't nicely linked both of you thank you yes. for the protocols i like it <laughs> <laughs> true professionals <laughs> so that's great so obviously like you've said you know there is no real normal day for you guys is there really so um with regards to Working in a shelter environment, obviously, that is quite different to working in practice. Is there sort of what what differences do you find there are? Are there any sort of specific challenges? Anything that sort of stands out or that you have to think about? I think um, when you're dealing with uh, shelter animals, particularly at an adoption centre, it is important to kind of think of the whole group of animals. So there is an element of herd health to it as well. 
But unlike with farm animals, there is also that individual at the centre of it all, which the staff who are looking after it will be very attached to and have quite a strong emotional connection to. So it's kind of balancing the whole herd health thing while still treating that like an individual and still making sure it gets the appropriate care. Mm. And I guess as well, um, a difference would be from private practice where you often practice, obviously, you're more um, general practitioner medicine. In a shelter environment, you practice pragmatic medicine which I love. I bang on about <laughs> pragmatic medicine day in, day out, and I do love pragmatic medicine. And I think what's lovely about it is that you um, are focusing on the individual animal's welfare when you're treating it. You, you, you're not so much influenced by the external factors, such as is this patient insured or not, because it probably won't be. Is referral an option? Nine times out of ten, it isn't. So it's making decisions based on the resources that you have. And I think it's important um, as a shelter vet to try and distinguish that in your in your mind because otherwise it can be really emotionally difficult, I think, mm -hmm. to, to make decisions. Um, so I think that is quite a big difference that our, our vets will find when doing cats protection work. I think also there is a tendency to feel like oh, well, in a shelter environment, you're not going to spend any money on cats and you're always going to choose the cheapest option compared to in private practice. But that isn't always true. Really, what we're focused on is getting the animals through the shelter as quickly as possible because being in the shelter is not a really good thing if you're a cat. So sometimes it, we would, where in a private practice, it might be able to take a watch and wait approach. That's not really appropriate for us. So sometimes we'll actually do more tests or tests sooner than you would in private practice, just so that we can make a decision a little bit more quickly and get the animal home, hopefully out and home. I suppose that's always the overarching aim, isn't it? To make sure also by the end of whatever in, in sort of whatever treatment or investigation you're doing, the cat is actually homeable. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I think for our role as well, part of that is... Um, trying to guide both our vets and our adoption centre staff not to fall into the sunk cost fallacy where we're having loads of um, tests done and the cat's been in care for an incredibly long time and we've invested a lot of emotional time and um, physical time and financial time and then we get, you know, months can go past and we're not really acknowledging the fact that we're, we're getting further and further down a, a, an end route that's not going to end and actually mm. that cat could have been put out of suffering a lot sooner but often it's it's a human thing and it's our emotions which again is a difference of private practice because you don't really so much have the sunk cost fallacy because the, the cat's in a, in a home environment and it's up to the owner really how far they go so um yeah we just have to be cautious that we're not getting sucked into that yeah but i also think you know if as long as you maintain the animal's welfare the entire time and make that your focus, then I yeah. think also you're much more steered towards that potentially pragmatic approach. And like you said, you're not, not hanging around and waiting and maybe do another test in a couple of weeks' time, but rather get the ball rolling and do more sooner, isn't it? Which yeah. isn't necessarily a bad thing from the cat's perspective as mm -hmm. well, is it? So do you tend to find that you typically see different um, diseases, for example, in the shelter population compared to maybe in the owned cats or something like that? I think there are some conditions we... Um, do you see more of and I'm not sure whether there's a higher incident necessarily in the shelter environment I just think when the cats are stressed they maybe present more dramatically so I think ringworm would be an example of that so um, we take ringworm very seriously because when cats come into care with ringworm it is actually quite difficult to get them better my guess would be that in the general population of cats there's probably a fair amount of low-level ringworm but in a non-stressful environment it just self-clears 
without really anyone being that bothered by it. Yeah, and I guess cat flu would be another one. Yeah. When you're in normal practice, um, you would see sort of low-level cat flu, a little bit snotty maybe, but still quite well. Whereas with our guys, when they're coming into care and they're really stressed, um, they can often manifest in a much more severe way than perhaps you see every day in practice. Yeah. Mm. And I think one condition that certainly I didn't see very often in practice, but we do see, is parvovirus. Yeah. Interestingly. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But also, I think also, um, like you've said, with all the other conditions, is the fact, again, if these cats are going to be homeable, we have a responsibility as well to make sure that as healthy as they can be. Or like you said, um, Jocelyn, with, with regards to ringworm, again, it's a zoonosis, so we can't exactly be homing these cats still being infected. So we've got to try and be as certain as we can be that they're negative before homing, isn't it? So again, that adds a very different element, in particular regarding time, yeah. Yeah. Um, to get these cats to micro... Um, um, actual cure isn't it so and I think working in a shelter environment compared to actually just sort of everyday charity practice I'm far more twitchy now about infectious diseases yeah generally as yeah. a whole than I probably was in a charity setting but I suppose again it's because you know you've got a bigger population even though you might just be seeing a few cats you know there's yeah. plenty more where those came from really isn't it and the implications of having a disease outbreak as well yeah, yeah. shutting um, centers down and yeah. things isn't yeah. It? yeah and large potentially large numbers of cats affected yeah yeah okay so that brings us on nicely <laughs> to the veterinary protocols so um do you want to just sort of give us an overview with regards to what protocols are why you think they're quite useful or are they useful do you have them obviously is it worth having them etc well, we love a protocol. We do. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if there's a flow chart. Yes, flow charts are the way forward, yeah. Um, so I guess we have expanded our protocol section quite rapidly mm-hmm. over the last few years. Um, we, I think I've almost saturated at the moment which practicals we, we which protocols we need at the moment, but um, we certainly have them to cover our infectious disease aspects, so... Um, ringworm that's quite a beefy one yeah uh cat flu is quite a new one yeah. uh fip flv siv um the list goes on yeah and then we also have some that are designed more at conditions yeah. that we see quite often such as chronic kidney disease hypothyroidism heart murmurs things like diarrhea. that diarrhea yeah yes. issues wasn't it i think we've got yes. skin it? problems that's right um yeah. Soon to be released as cystitis. Yes, diabetes. Diabetes. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is the use of, of these protocols or why is it worth having? I think they have an, a number of uses. They're very useful for the vets and they're sort of we have some that are aimed exclusively at vets and some that are aimed more at vets and carers. Mm-hmm. And I think they're very useful at making sure that everyone knows what steps to take and that all the appropriate steps are taken in a logical order as opposed to kind of doing one test here and then one test there and then waiting a few weeks and doing another test so i think it helps to progress the cats kind of through the diagnostic route in a logical mm-hmm. and timely fashion i think they're also useful for the volunteers to kind of be able to see where the cat's ending up so whether the cat's doing well or whether actually it's not responding to the various treatments that that are on offer and actually this might not be one that's going to be terribly successful it's quite useful for them to have a feeling for that early on 
so they can see where the cat's heading as opposed to all of a sudden out of the blue the vet goes well that's it there's nothing more we can do trying to put it to sleep which you know can be very distressing if you're not expecting it whereas this way if everyone's working through a protocol together they know well we'll try this but if that doesn't work we can try that but that's the last thing so everyone can see where they're going because it's managing expectations in a way isn't it really which is probably helpful i think for us as a charity as well because we do work with a lot of veterinary providers it helps just to provide that consistency of care for our cats so if you're um, adopting a cat from uh, an adoption centre or branch in Scotland it will have gone through the same process with its disease that one in you know Wales or Kent would have had mm-hmm. so it's just to help provide that consistency of care across the charity and yes to manage expectations not just of staff or volunteer but also for the vet as well because I think it can be really tricky if you're not seeing in sort of the branch environment loads and loads of um, cat protection cats it can be difficult to know actually well how far do they want me to go and that sort of thing so it provides that clarity which I think as a vet I would find useful yeah so we hope they're useful we hope they're useful (laughs) I agree I mean I still remember when I was working in practice and we worked with a small shelter and they definitely had no protocols to start off with. And it's quite confusing because even different vets in within the practice yeah. seeing different yeah. cats do different things, which then again confuses, you know, the, the shelter staff to a degree as well because well, okay, that cat with diarrhea had five different treatments, whereas this one's only got one and there's no, uh, like you said, you know, so no common approach, which obviously does, um, does not really help to try and solve problems. Um, so with regards to CP, obviously you've, you've mentioned quite a list there. And again, all of these <laughs> protocols are available free of charge on our website. On the, um, if you just go to the CP uh, website and then have a look under a section called For Vets and Nurses. Again, I will link all of this in the show notes as well. You can find the protocols there. We do emphasize that these are mainly used for cats in cat protection care. But again, they might be useful for people or vets treating cats within other shelters. So if there's something that they can adapt, obviously that's... Um, going to be really good and hopefully useful as well isn't it yeah and also um like like you say they are written by cp vets for cp animals but what i would say is that you know they could even be useful if you're in a situation where an animal's not insured and owner's really financially restrained and you just want a logical but good welfare approach to a, a disease then I think they could be quite applicable yeah. in that situation as well. Again, the pr- pragmatic approach, isn't pragmatic. it? Really? Absolutely. <laughs> <Medicine>. <laughs> so how do you guys actually go about, I know you've developed a fair few recently, um, obviously there have been some that have been around for a while, so how do you actually go about developing these protocols? What sets it off or when do you decide what needs doing? How does it work? So normally we have a chat to the uh, vets that work with our adoption centres because they're seeing a lot of cases and also we ask the adoption centre staff and branch volunteers what they think they need more guidance on, what cases they're finding really difficult and and would like a little bit more guidance. Normally we sort of have a chat amongst ourselves and again with some of the vets we're working with about what they're currently doing and how that could be tweaked, whether they're all doing the same thing, you know, if one practice is doing something different is that really working really well for them should maybe everyone we be doing it that way yeah and, and i think you know we do have what 35 36 adoption centers yeah. and they're all working with different vets so we we do get quite a nice wide variety of clinical approaches can imagine that yeah and um it's and just through the queries that come through to us, you, you do tend to get a vibe of actually where people are struggling to have a standardised approach. So we that's 
how we've managed so far to base what we've yeah. decided on which pri- which protocols take priority as well. Um, and then, as Jocelyn says, we talk to the adoption centre vets. Um, we obviously we discuss amongst CP vets how we feel sh- the most appropriate shelter medicine approach would be to cats in our care. And we have to bear in mind we have cats in adoption centre setting, but we also have them in a branch setting. So they need to be appropriate across the charity. Um, we then will draft often a flowchart. Yes. <laughs> We'll draft a flowchart and often um, a you know more wordy document as well, and then that will go through various um, stages of review and um, sort of almost like a critical analysis. Yeah. And then often, depending on the protocol, it will then go through a trial period. Yeah. So quite often, particularly if it's one that we um, need the staff to do quite a lot of work with, like the acute diarrhea and the flu one. It's a lot of it was based on what the staff could do for the cats right. um, so we sort of try it out in a few adoption centres first make sure what we're asking is practical and realistic yeah. and then based on that we get our final protocol okay so it's quite a drawn out process and quite detailed isn't it yeah, yeah so yeah. it can take uh, some of them can be sort of in planning for like six months to a year yeah. from when we first think of the idea to when the final final draft goes yeah. out but it's got to be right as well isn't it because yeah. i think yeah. especially where it does affect a fair few people like you said you know even 35 or 36 adoption center vets alone that's already quite a number then all the staff and cat carers also yeah. and then also obviously all the branch vets etc that's quite a few people so you've got to make sure you've got it right before you do anything with it isn't it and also a lot of the protocols aren't just um based on a medical approach we also have to take into account um if it's an infectious disease one cleaning protocols which disinfectants we're using yeah. how many deep cleans is it a deep clean spot clean there's a lot that goes into it because it's in a shelter environment rather yeah. than just a home environment and again always bearing that vulnerability in mind as well isn't yeah, it and, yeah and zoonosis as well because again staff potentially do get get affected by yeah. caring for these cats and oh that sounds like a bit of, <laughs> bit of a chunky job really doesn't it so with regards to protocols, again, I'm assuming they get tweaked as you go along if they need to. Do they get reviewed ever? Yes. 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 So they're working progress basically yeah. at the time, I can imagine, isn't it, depending on... So once they're sort of finished and rolled out, then I think we try and give it a year before we go, then we go back in, have another look. <laughs> have a break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and go back in and then we obviously in that time we'll have got a bit more feedback about yeah. what has and hasn't been working. If there's anything we need to change, we can change it then. And some some cases there'll be natural modifications because they are just guidance and we appreciate that not all cases will fit perfectly into our lovely flow charts or our wordy documents. So they are just guidance and, and it is really useful when we have our adoption centre CPD days with our vets to get that feedback and actually they can say, you know what, nine times out of ten we've actually modified to this approach. It didn't okay. really work. Yeah. So that's quite useful as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so they're getting feedback from the field, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Front line. Yeah. Cold from the, face. From from the, the people, people doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I, I thought it might be useful if we have a little look at maybe one of the flow charts um, that we've got here, which is the kidney disease, because I think, for me, the interesting point to notice is obviously that, again, this is quite different to what you would potentially do with a cat that you would see in a private practice, not so much with regards to... Mm, well, I suppose the treatment approach as well, isn't it? I suppose we've got different cutoffs at different stages. So I don't know if you can talk us through that a little bit and just sort of 
um, highlight a few differences? Yeah, yeah I think um, I think lots of people looking at our um, chronic kidney disease protocol might be a little bit surprised because I think there'd be perhaps a tendency to think in a charity setting you wouldn't really investigate. You just go, oh, it's got a little bit of kidney disease, never mind, eh? Uh, whereas we have taken the decision that we really want to know how far along this cat is so we do want to stage this cat using the iris staging so that we can really give owners a better idea about a sort of prognosis and whether it's fair to rehome this cat uh, because it's likely to have you know obviously we can't guarantee but there's a really good chance that it's going to have a good quality of life for several years whether actually the kindest thing is euthanasia so that's why we actually go into quite a lot of detail and we do stage the cats which is good practice though isn't it because i think again nowadays i do think in especially in feline practice but also in general practices it, it is becoming much more commonplace to actually stage kidney disease as soon as you pick it up to like you said prognosis sort of give a prognosis with regards to long term i know it's not across the board but it, it does give you an idea isn't it so and i think it's good because again it gets goes back to managing expectations it manages the expectations of the caregiver looking yes. after that cat but also a potential new owner so we're having complete transparency about what the owner potentially taking on yeah um, there are subtle differences between the full-on iris staging and ours is sort of a, a modified version but the essence of it is still the same um, so we would um, first of all we don't routinely run just screening tests in geriatric patients there needs to be a clinical implication as to why we would need to be running some tests. So a cat will present with symptoms that we think potentially could um, be the result of chronic kidney disease. We will assess a urine sample and, and a dipstick. And we will run blood, so we'll do um, a biochemistry panel. We will also, which again is probably different from your routine practice, look at um, running an FELV and FIV mm -hmm. test as well. Um, and we will... Um, run a PCV. We don't routinely run, a, probably for these guys, a, a full-on haematology profile. The PCV will give us an indication of whether we're looking at a chronic non-regenerative anemia or, you know, blood count when everything looks fine. And again, a, probably a difference from normal practice now is that we don't routinely run an SDMA and an anemia. Um, and then looking at that in conjunction with a dilute urine sample less than 1035 would then start looking to stage the cat based on the creatinine rather than the SDMA, which I know obviously the iris staging now takes into account the SDMA. Um, and then we stage them just the same. So if creatinine is less than 140, but we've still got dilute urine, then we'd be looking at a stage one. Um, these guys, we probably wouldn't initiate any further work up on them, but if they're still in care in a month's time, we'd be looking to repeat um, the unspecific gravity and the creatinine just to check whether anything's progressing mm -hmm. and then stage two we have the 140 to up to 250 um, cutoff and this is where we then start looking to be substaging the kidney disease um, so we will assess for proteinuria but we start off with with the dipstick which we all know doesn't give you a sort of quantitative value but if it's less than 1% on the dipstick, we probably wouldn't be looking to run a UPCR unless there was a clinical indication. Um, and we're really keen on trying to encourage our vets to look at um, samples themselves, so to do um, a sediment stain if possible, just because if there is 
protein in the urine before we start doing the UPCL, we want to know whether that's um, due to a possible infection and an active um, problem or whether it is actually leaky protein, uh, leaky kidneys. Um, so we will run the UPCR in certain situations and the cutoff will be the same. So if it's less than 0.2, fine. Um, if it's the 0.2 to 0.4 cutoff, then we'd class it as borderline and we would actually retest. If it was still borderline, then we, looking at the whole clinical picture, we could be considering euthanasia of that patient. And then if it's more than 0.4, we would be discussing euthanasia just because there is evidence to show that if we do have dramatic protein quantities in the urine, then it comes with a much poorer prognosis. Mm -hmm. And obviously we don't want to be homing cats that, you know, weeks like one month later within a really poor way yeah. and what we wouldn't do is start them on any treatment for the protein yeah. urea because there isn't really any um, evidence at the moment that that prolongs their life it just controls the symptom yeah. of protein in the urine but yeah. it, it, it's not and clear. also if you were to rehome that cat with the medication then again that's another problem as well isn't it yeah. not every cat's easy to medicate and not every owner's prepared or able to do so either isn't it so it's another complication Although, having said that, we will rehome, we do always test their blood pressure as well if they're stage two, and we will rehome them on. Um, on a red team. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if their blood pressure is raised. Yeah. Um, but that's been, that's quite clear. Yeah, that's got a clear benefit. Yeah. yeah. And again, our cutoffs for the blood pressure measurement are different from um, the blood pressures of the iris staging because our cats in care are in care they're not having their blood pressure taken in a really quiet environment with in the loving arms of their owner that they feel comfortable in they're in a very foreign environment and they are inherently more stressed so if you look at the protocol you will see that the the cutoffs are slightly different as well um and i guess you know when we start heading into the stage three and fours um so with the creatine more than 250 we that's when we start having conversations. Certainly if we're in the stage four category, we would be looking at euthanasia because in our environment, in the, in the shelter environment, we know these guys, like we keep saying, are inherently more stressed. And with that stress comes deterioration of chronic diseases um, in a much more speedy fashion than if they were just nice and relaxed in their home environment. So um, for a quality of life and welfare point of view, we don't want to keep these guys in care for them to die in care mm. um, so that's really important for us and again for an owner we need to be honest um, and we need to be homing cats that, that they're not going to take on and then leave really quickly because yeah. that's emotionally very difficult I think if you've done that and particularly something with chronic renal disease because they are on such a knife edge, sometimes just the act of them moving into a new home, perhaps being a little bit too nervous to keep up their water intake is enough to actually trigger them into like a much worse state mm -hmm. and then they end up in toxic really soon yeah. after they've been rehomed, which is horrible for them and horrible for the That's new right. owner. Yeah, you can imagine how they feel as well, isn't it? The guilt and everything mm. that comes along. That's really interesting. No, but I think it's also it's it's really important to point out those differences and again, like you said, you know, making sure the welfare comes first but also the homeability is always right there and sadly with the best will in the world a geriatric cat with you know stage 3 renal disease is going to take significantly longer to home than the kitty next door that's jumping sure. around um, or even the healthy four year old or even the healthy yeah. four year old so 
you have to be realistic and like I say we just don't want these guys coming into care and dying in care because that's such poor work so no great um, you've mentioned obviously the list of protocols this one the kidney uh, chronic kidney disease is on the website as well so if anybody does want to have a look at it feel free to look at it and if you find it useful do please use it um, if you have any feedback there's many other protocols on there as well like we said earlier you know with regards to thyroid disease and many more um so again do make make use of those if, if you find them useful is there anything else you guys want to add with regards to protocols anything you think is important to pass on apart from everything we've said so far i just think they're there they're a free resource so use them if if appropriate to your situation really or if you just have an interest in, in pragmatic or shelter medicine that they're just quite an interesting read really they could refresh as well i would yeah. like oh how was this again let's have a quick look and go oh that's fine and as a as a practicing vet i didn't till i came to cancer protection i wasn't really that switched on about which disinfectants i should be using yeah. in which situation so i've learned a lot about disinfectants <laughs> infectious um, disease yeah. control yes. stop. yeah um, so you know even in normal practice if you're thinking about in your isolation unit which disinfectant you should be using for which bug you think an animal has just yeah they're really useful they're they? useful yeah great Okay, well, if nobody, no, nobody's got anything else to add, thank you both very much for coming in. I know you're busy, busy, busy doing protocols <laughs> and everything else. So I appreciate your time, and I'm sure we'll chat again at some stage soon. Indeed. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.